0: Let's say a word of prayer real quick, and then we'll hit the road here. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word which, by which we are created and through which we are sustained, and which redeems us, your word from the cross, which promises us forgiveness of sins. We pray that you would bless us today as we study your word, that we may inwardly digest it and take it to heart, pondering all these things so that we may once again follow you. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. All right. So you have a big packet, and the order is is not of significance. But except for that, we're all on the same to be all on the same page. Okay. So um, don't don't mix it up. Just don't don't do that. Um, let me let me ask you uh, first whether you have any questions. Do you have any questions? Okay. Good. Perfect. Pastor Nelson's been doing a good job then. The, we, we are, we're more or less on the third section of this, this document the, on the dignity of woman. The third section is called The Image and Likeness of God. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that today. And you're not going to. a lot of it's not going to be necessarily new stuff. Um, but I want to uh, sort of stretch ourselves a bit and think more. Well, here's, here's how we're going to do it. Uh, open up your Bibles. You got a Bible in front of you? Open up to Mark chapter 8. Now, so just, I think it's really helpful to uh, often have a, the big picture in mind when you're reading scripture. So, one of, the, one of the things I've been doing with the high schoolers is taking them through some of the, the the lessons that the Sunday school kids are doing. And a lot has been from Mark lately. And one of the really helpful ways to think about the book of Mark is this. It's to think of it in, as, as three sections. So, let's do it like this. The first section... Um, this marker was good before. The first section is who answers the question who. The last section answers the question how. And um, just this, so there's, it's really very simple. The, for, the question is who, who is the Messiah? And we get it from the very beginning of Mark. Mark begins his book by saying, The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, let, me get, let me say it right. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, according as it was written, according to Isaiah the prophet. So Mark says right away, Jesus, the person Jesus is the Messiah, um, and then he shows how Jesus reveals or how that's revealed about Jesus throughout the first seven chapters of the book of Mark, and you see that in Jesus' baptism, um, in his in the miracles, like raising. Um, the paralytic, and calming the storm, and calling the apostles. So you, you find out that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, in uh, Mark is writing to a Jewish context where the question still is sort of outstanding, what exactly is the Messiah going to do? So here's um, R- Roman-occupied territory, and if you think of somebody as a Messiah, they're going to be riding in on a on a white horse, right? A, a knight in shining armor. And so you think they're going to rout the, the Romans. But it turns out that the answer to this question, how is Jesus the Messiah, um, all points to the cross, right? So he is not the Messiah in that he routs the Romans, but he's the Messiah in that he suffers and dies. Um, now, this is, this is uh, really helpful if you're reading Mark. If you ever come across a section of Mark um, and you say, you know, how do I understand how this fits in the big picture? Here's how it, here's how it works out. Chapters 1 through 7, and then 10, late, late chapter 10 through the end, through 16, answers those two questions. Now, the, the turning point is in the middle, and this is what pertains to uh, what we're dealing with today. So turn to Mark chapter 8, and especially verse 27, verses 27 and following, we have this really interesting, really familiar conversation. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So it's a question of identity. Who do people say that I am? And they told him John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the the prophets. So everybody everybody sees that in one way or another, Jesus is fulfilling what the Old Testament has promised. They don't doubt that he's the Messiah, right? Right? And neither do the apostles. Listen to what Peter says. Uh, And Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Okay? That's which is like it's that's the confession of a Christian. Jesus is the Christ. You are the Christ. But notice what happens next. So uh, Jesus, as he does throughout Mark, strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So, he went from, yeah, we got it right. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. To, he must suffer many things and be rejected and die. He said, Jesus says this to the disciples three times in this middle section. Three times um, he predicts, he foretells his death and resurrection. Um, and you know how the story goes. Uh, Peter is not too pleased with that, and he said this plainly. So there was no like. You think about it. You want you you uh, put yourself in the shoes of the apostles, and you think, well, maybe they were a bit surprised, caught off guard, right? That Jesus died on the cross. Well, no, he told them three times explicitly, plainly. He said it plainly to them. But here's how Peter reacts. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, "Get behind me, Satan!" For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, Peter, though he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus has amply demonstrated that, misunderstands what the Messiah is going to do, suffer and die, right? Um, misunderstands that the Messiah's mission is one of love and not vengeance, okay? That the freedom of, that the Messiah brings is a of, of freedom that's life coming through death, and not not a, not a restoration of life to the way it once was. Um, but Peter, notice the contrast. It's remarkable. Um in, in Matthew, Jesus says, when, when Peter um, says, you are the Christ, Jesus says, it's th- blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but your Father who is in heaven, right? This is a miraculous thing that he says this. Um, but now, in the next sentence, he's Satan, right? So as soon as you say that being the Messiah is not doesn 't consist of suffering and dying you 've got it one hundred percent wrong you 're facing in the complete opposite direction. Does that make sense? You follow so I give that to you just because i it 's a helpful way to think about the book of Mark and maybe you can stow that in your back pocket, but also because this question of identity is really what we 're dealing with um, in this discussion about the dignity of women so peter 's jesus important question to the disciples was who do you say that I am right, and in many ways the uh, the jews the apostles um, didn 't have trouble with the question who am who am I? who do you say that you are but that 's sort of the question we 're engaging today right so i want so and this is the question that Pope john paul is setting out to answer, and that all this stuff we 're reading um, is trying to answer who are you, and one of the ways that we have to start answering that question is by. Um, thinking about who do you say that you are. Okay, does that make sense? So the question that we're going to start with is, who do you, who do you say that you are? And I, or let's, let's take a step back even further. Who do people say that you are? Not just, just generally, how does the world, how does the world understand identity? What, what does it mean to be human? Who, does, who do people say that you are? Not you as Christians, but just you as people. Okay, so there's family. Good. You're a worker of some sort. Occupation. Okay. Nationality. Nationality, okay? Yeah, or ethnicity we could say. And you're also by your character. Character, good. This is going to be really hard to read, isn't it? <laughs> character. Okay. What else? Yeah. Gender, yeah. Now, these are all really very traditional things, right? So now, come into the twenty-first century, and who do people say that you are? Like your inner thoughts. Yeah, your, you, uh, your, uh, this, yeah, inner thoughts, intellect.
1: People say, if you
0: want to talk about all the labels, it's yeah. Scary. There's a bunch of isms. Maybe that goes back to character, though. Um, yeah. That,
1: that people would
0: judge, or but but interestingly, character becomes a really discrete thing. A discrete in terms of there are specific boxes. It's polarized thing, right? So you are either this or that, right? You are either with these people or with those people. Um, which is how you get you get all kinds of wonderful labels for people.
1: What about web or face page?
0: Oh, that's good. Who do people say that you are? You are your online persona, right? Uh, now, parse that out a little bit more specifically. What is Suppose that you are an avid user of Facebook. What is your online persona? Your best self. Your best self. Good your best you okay this is great now now so this is perfect so you don't have to use social media to know that the inherent temptation in social media is to put forward either the just the best parts of you or to outright lie right about yourself right it's a created image, it's a created image. um this is, that's is a great way to describe it. It's a created image. Maybe it's who you want to be, um, and and so in some ways the so te- technology is just this facilitator for us to do what we've always wanted to do, which is simply to be who we want to be. Um,
1: Could you put on there? Uh, I am who I think I. Am?
0: Yeah. Wait, right. So. Um, uh, who, yeah. Who you think you are. I
1: myself
0: to be. Yeah. Right. Now, there are some ways that this really is is an, is innocuous, right? So, um, saying to your kids, you, you know what, you can, you, you can, uh, if you work hard and excel, you could strive to be anything you want to be, right? You can have any job you want, right? That's a really positive thing. And, and, uh. As opposed to the alternative, which is, you're dumb as bricks. You should probably not go to college, right? Um, I've never said that to my kids. So, in some ways, it's really innocuous, and it sort of slips in. But then it, but then it becomes uh, insidious when the reason why we are projecting our best self or who we think we are or who we want to be is simply for the regard of others, Right? Um, so it's this, uh, who's the the sociologist who talks about, um, this mirror, this reflection of yourself is, is, is how you understand yourself. How other people regard you is how you regard yourself. Um, now all this is, this is, uh, what you do in a world where you don't have any mooring for identity, where you don't know, where you don't have any good definition of who you are, okay? Um, good. So... There's so much to say. Um, let's th- let's do this. In in what Pope John Paul wrote, he says that um, the question of who you are as a woman um, really stems from the beginning, which means which stems from who you are as a human, right? So here we have all these questions about about personal identity. Take a step back further and say and answer what 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 does it mean to be human what do you think How, or what does this what does the world say about being human it says lots of different things i don't know why i being human okay that's good so and this is this is uh Part and parcel of being human. Empathy. Um, Empathy. Um, Good. Okay. What else? In America, I feel
1: like it's autonomous.
0: Yes. Good. So, to be human is to be autonomous or self-determinant. This word autonomous, maybe I've told you this, comes from the Greek... Auto, you know what that means. It's like like an automatic. Anything that's automatic does it for itself. An automatic car drives itself. Namas is the Greek word for law. So you are a law unto yourself, which uh, I don't think is ever a good idea, right? But there it is. This is what what it is to be human, to be self-determinant, right? Go, Go on. What else does it mean to be human? Rational rational. Or at least Yep. And along with that comes speaking, right? Okay. Good. So now in in some in this is this is sort of a uh, the historic philosophical definition of what it means to be human. Humans are reasoning animals. Okay? So even even from a Christian perspective we would just say we are creatures like every other creature, but creatures that God has endowed with a special gift, specifically that we can reason and speak, okay? We'll talk about that more in just a bit. But that implies, that, that's contradictory with saying that humanity equals autonomy, right? How, how, can you see how those two things contradict each other? So this, this reason is a gift, Autonomy means I've not received anything from anybody, right? Um, alternately, so this is this is really sort of the enlightenment way of thinking about humanity. We are we are the pinnacle of the world in that we can determine um, we can decide things, and now now sort of at the, the end of the line is we can decide even who we are, right? We can decide we can make decisions about what it is to be human, right? Um, uh, complete self-determination is um, the the value of the enlightenment. The alternative is a sort of materialism, which says we are just like every every other part of this world, right? So we are composed of just a bunch of atoms that behave according to the laws of physics, and it's all... Determined by laws of physics. Yeah, Nancy. Yeah,
1: I, I maybe I'm taking the wrong twist in this because pre-Enlightenment, the as there are
0: many, so many cultures in the world where really people used to see themselves as part of the community, right. or the larger family.
1: You know, what? I, when I try to think about Africa and think about Would they have thought of themselves as completely autonomous, and I'm not sure because I mean, well, things are changing a lot of influence in the West. Right. But it used to be much more that you were an, a, an element in a larger group.
0: Yes, good, perfect. Um, so, And that, and that's certainly true. So um, what you're describing here, let me just uh, put it in perspective. What you're describing here is sort of the unique context that we live in here in America. And it's really important it, it, here in the West. It's really important for you to know that this is the, this, this is the sort of the intellectual baggage that whether you, whether you articulate it like this or whether you think of it in terms of saying, I can be whatever I want to be, um, this, is, this is your inheritance. You're welcome, right? We can thank uh, 200 years, 300 years of, of Western history for this, this bent to our thinking. Now, the reason why th- understanding this is really important is because the biblical way of understanding humanity is completely different. Um, Now, it has a lot in common with other cultures in which, for instance, community is valued and not autonomy, right, where you're understood as a part of a community before you're understood as an individual. But still, the uh, the way we answer this question, we should go back to what Scripture says about being human. So, if we were going to answer the question, who who does God say that you are, where would we look in the Bible for that? What do you think? Start in Genesis. Okay, open up to Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 26. Now, this, is, this, this really says everything you need to know. God said on the sixth day, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so now if you take that, what do we learn about humanity from that? created okay now uh, let's pause there for a second we tend to we we tend to think of creation in a really mechanical way so um like a wind-up toy right you construct something and then you set it off on its way that is not how creation works in our relationship to god um take a look at okay let me see if i can find it in the packet there's a page that has, says on the top, Oswald Bayer, Martin Luther's Theology. It's got a copy of a yellow sticky note on the side, and on the bottom it says page 156. It's about three pages from the back of your packet. It looks like this. I'm sorry, this was, I, you know, I should have done this differently. But Okay, so now this is what Oswald Bayer says in his book about Martin Luther's Theology. To be human means to have undeserved existence, that which is purely indebted to another. Correspondingly, the main point is about whether the human being is to be defined by his ability to reason or because he is designated as human on account of faith. So, is it something that's inherent in us in that we can reason or is it because of our relationship to our Creator that makes us human? This is the question. Thus, whether the existence of the world is guaranteed by the action of the human being or whether the existence of the human being in the world is to be believed as God's action toward him. We have seen how Luther interprets creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, as continually new creation and conservation of the world against nothingness and evil. So what happens if God stops creating? It's gone, right? God's action of creation is continual. We confess this in the first article of the Creed, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Do you remember Luther's explanation to that? Does any, is the catechism in the back of that Bible? Marilyn. I believe that God has created me and, and all creatures, that he has given me... Body, so ...and still preserves them, right? Um, keep going. Keep going. Can you keep going? <laughs> Isaiah go. is an all-man and still preserves him. He daily and richly provides me... for
1: it is my duty to thank and praise him. Serve and obey.
0: Okay. This is most certainly true. Good. So, um, thank you very much. The key parts there are... Uh, he preserves them, right? Now, we, th- we, we often think of this in... In terms of like daily bread from that we pray for in in the Our Father, but the the fact is our created existence is continually contingent. It depends the entire time on God's will. If God decided that he didn't want us anymore, he wouldn't have us anymore, right? Um, so now this is this puts cre- the whole of creation in, in, in a very. Humble perspective, right? So now the question of autonomy is completely out the window, right? So from the beginning we were never autonomous. We were always created. Um, and and therefore, as Bayer said, we were indebted to God. Now what now that's a really interesting language because we usually think of indebtedness in terms of sin. How before sin was creation indebted, were humanity indebted to God? What did they owe him? Yeah, everything. Allegiance, um, very simply, acknowledgement that he is the one who created them, right? That's, that's at its base what faith consists of, saying of God, yes, in fact, you are God, right? And what you say is true. Um, take a look. Let me see. Yep, on that same page. Don't turn the page. See how I underlined four lines there? Waiting and yearning for that which is necessary for life, that is faith. At the same time, that is the very existence of the human being and all creatures. If this existence is guaranteed purely by goodness and purely because of mercy against all threats. So, um, you, we've, again, we think of God being merciful and good, um, especially in Christ Jesus. And there we have a uh, completely new revelation of God's goodness and mercy. But he was good and merciful from the beginning in that he gave us Existence, not not like other creatures, um, for whom man was man was, for for who were, who were created for man to have dominion over, but man was created for his own sake. Okay, so all this is bundled up in uh, creation, which then says to be human is to um, exist in relationship to the creator. So you can't be human. Um, except by being a creature of the creator. If you think anything else you got it wrong. And you're going to you're going to keep getting it wrong. Okay? And this is why the world gets so mixed up about things because they get this wrong. What else do we learn in Genesis 1 about being human? over the earth really is also granted by something that Right, right. So now that's, that's a really good point. The dominion um, is an authority, a granted authority, right? It's a gift, which means that it's, uh, it's not doesn't come from within us, but it's according to what God describes as good, right? So, subdue the earth. Um, and what is God's goal in all of this? Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens. And everything that lives and moves on the earth. It's like what he says in the garden. Every tree is for eating, except for that one tree, right? Um, This is all for you. Good. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay, perfect. So now there's responsibility all of a sudden in several directions. So this implies a certain responsibility, right? So uh, to be a creature of the creator means that... um, when here's, here's one way to look at it. When God speaks, we're called to respond, right? If we don't respond, then, uh, then we're denying our, our, our relationship to God. Um, this is where being rational creatures, where being speaking creatures is really important. So when God creates people and converses with them, he tells us all kinds of things about us and himself. He tells us that we are unique in that um, we can speak, especially in that we can articulate the praise and glory of God, right? So we can say true things about God which glorify Him. But it also means that because we enter into conversation with God, that God is a listening God, right? He's not a God who simply speaks and makes things happen. And that this is very peculiar, right? He speaks... And listens for a response, right Where are you, Adam? He listens for a response. Um, so now already we learned something in in god 's creation of humanity. we learned something really important about God that his uh, in creating humanity, his desire was to have a relationship with us. right What else do we learn? Oh, sorry. And then, and then, in the, the the position of dominion that he puts man over the rest of the creation, implies a responsibility as well, right? Um, so again, we tend to think of um, laws. We tend to think of laws as being a sort of a restrictive, bad thing. That and that that living in the Garden of Eden meant living in paradise means freedom. You can do whatever you want, right? It's quite the opposite, right? Um, you have you ha- you have responsibility to God and your fellow and your and your common creation, but the beautiful thing about paradise is that you want to fulfill that responsibility. You will fulfill that responsibility um, because it's good. Because you know it's good. You believe it's good, and you uh, and God tells you that it's good. Okay, this is the this is the, where we see the rub with sin. Um, we, even, even if we know that something is good, we just don't want to have it uh, because our wills are corrupted. What else do we see? Yes, Martha.
1: Um, he invites us into the creation process with him yeah. by blessing us and
0: telling us to do That's right. So we're not, we, we're not co-creators, but we cooperate with him, which is a great word. I'm getting really nerdy right now, guys. I'm sorry. Um, this... Co means with and operate. That's obvious, but that, you can could, you could see um, some more roots in here. Opera, which is works, which we see as great works of music, right? Great theatrical works of music. So we work with God. He, he gives us that privilege and responsibility of working with him. What does that tell us about our relationship, our hierarchical relationship with the rest of creation then? Or our our role our our position in the creation narrative our position in the creation story, what does that tell us? We are, on top. we are on top, right? Which sounds really presumptuous, except that God put us there, and He tells the story in such a way as to make that eminently clear, right? It uh, talks he talks about the glory and beauty and goodness of creation, but then He just elaborates on the creation of man. This is why he did it all. Okay? Uh, how you doing? Okay. That... Saying that we are top of the creation
1: here on earth. Yes. Yes. And. Uh... I feel like
0: we're managers. Yes, yeah, stewards, right? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, good. What else do we learn in Genesis 1?
1: We're made in
0: this image, whatever the world is. Whatever the world that means, image. Yes, image and likeness, male and female. Okay, now it's hard to understate, hard to overstate the importance of this. Take a look at this little poem. Is it indented? Verse twenty-seven, indented in your in your Bible. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a Hebrew poem. It's poetry, and the uh, reason why something's written poetically or in a particular form, is to emphasize the importance of something. Now, this form, you can see how redundant it is, right? The first half of the sentence says exactly the same thing as the second half of the sentence. God created man in his own image. In His image, in the image of God, he created it. It says the same thing twice. Why would we say it twice? Well, because it's that important, right? And then also, why would we say Why would he reverse the order of the, th- of the things? So, God created man in his image. Then, in the image of God, he created them. What does he put at the middle? The image of God. This is the thing that is most important for us to recognize here. Man is created not um, like the rest of the creatures, just out of nothing. But we were created out of nothing, into the image of God. To be like God in one way or the other. Also, then, this, uh, this statement, male and female have created them, is a part of the poem. Right? So being created in the image of God. This is, just, this is crucial. Being created in the image of God means being created male and female. So it's not that God made a uh, prototype human and then made a bunch of variations on that human. right? But it's that God made humanity, and there was humanity male and female. And you can't have one without the other. Okay? And that also tells us, so this is peculiarly, this is part of what it means to be in the image of God. Being male and female is part of what it means to be in the image of God. We'll talk about that in a second, Carol.
1: Is there any significance to in the creation story? God made plants, God made animals, no sex involved, but for generation needed, but for human beings. He, in here specifically,
0: male. Right. Yeah. So this is what it tells you, is that um, male, being male and female is not merely about procreation. Right? Because as the animal kingdom proves, you can have procreation with a single, you can have asexual reproduction, right? God can do whatever he wants. It's amazing. Being male and female is instead, more importantly, a reflection of God's image. Now, how can that be? What do you think that means? That being male and female is a reflection of God's image. What do you think? Oh, I think of um, like Jesus being both God and man at the same time. Yeah, right,
1: they're
0: inseparable.
1: They're distinct,
0: but right, right. So um, that does t- So it tells us about. Uh, it tells us a lot about how God relates um, to. His, to the created world, right, in a, uh, in a way that sort of defies our categories. It also tells us about how God relates to himself. Uh, somebody, yeah, Krista. Um, I was thinking that God has somebody to talk to. That's right, right. Yeah, so when God creates male and female, he's saying, um, I'm creating this unitary thing, humanity. It's one thing. Here's Humanity. But that unity is, as Pope John Paul says, is a unity of two. Just like the Trinity is a unity of three. Very strange, right? It's a unity of two because there's this interpersonal relationship that is requisite, that is integral to our image of being made in the image of God, right? Um, so this then this then tells us a lot about the Trinity, which isn't articulated. Fully until we get to the New Testament and, like, the baptism of Jesus. And then we see, right? We hear God speaking to His Son. Why would would God need to speak to... Why would God the Father need to speak to His Son when they're both God, right? And why would He need to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to rest on Him except that communicating is part and parcel of who He is? Holly, were you going to say something? Uh, I don't know. Okay.
1: I'm just saying about, like you know, love God and serve your neighbor. How we always talk about this word model, this image. And if you didn't have, I don't know, if you necessarily didn't have the female part, you couldn't serve, you
0: know. I mean, it could be another man, obviously, that you're serving if you're a man. Right. So I don't know if yeah, and So now, um, take a look. If you have this document um, from Pope John Paul, on page... 9 The third paragraph Page 9, the third paragraph. Now this is skipping ahead to Genesis 2. Let me let me just read for you real quick what happens in Genesis 2 because it again sort of informs everything we're talking about. Genesis 2:18, this is what happens. The Lord God said, "It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him." Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what He would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now the word, interestingly, the word there for rib" is more generically the word for this for side. So sometimes you'll see an icon uh, where Eve is just sort of protruding out of the side of Adam, which is a, I think a sort of a richer way of thinking of it. It's not that it's not that God took one of Adam's parts and um, crafted something different from Adam from that part, but she came from him. Meaning just like it just like the way we be, it uh, procreation works, right? Begetting and bearing is not some, your, your children are not dis, distinct from you in the sense that, or they're not separable from you, right? They, they, uh, they have you in them. Um, and that rib that the Lord God had taken from Adam, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, another poem, and I, I, this, you have to picture this being said in just rapturous ecstasy, right? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here's what John Paul says about this. Uh, let's take a look at the second paragraph on page 9. In the unity of two, man and woman are called from the beginning not only to exist side by side or together, but they are called to exist mutually one for another. That's why... This is why Eve was created not just to be another person, but to be a helper fit for Adam. Their existence is bound to one another. This also explains... Here's what he says. This also explains the meaning of the help spoken in Genesis 2. I will make him a helper fit for him. The biblical context enables us to understand this in the sense that the woman must help the man, and in his turn he must help her, first of all, by the very fact of their being human persons. So... so The simple fact of their existence is the help. In a certain sense, this enables man and woman to discover their humanity ever anew and confirm its whole meaning. So uh, hang on, because this is where it gets really important. We can easily understand that on this fundamental level, it is a question of help on the part of both and at the same time a mutual help. To be human means to be called to interpersonal communication. The text of Genesis 2 shows that marriage is the first... And in a sense, the fundamental dimension of this call, but it is not the only one. The whole of human history unfolds within the context of this call, of this call to be helpers one for another, right? So the fact that God creates humanity as a unity of two means that we are not islands unto ourselves, right? John Donne, no man is an island, right? Um, I highlighted some things in this. Uh, Book by Thomas Merton. This is now the first thing in your little packet. Take a look at page what I says it says page four on the bottom. So there's all, all these dimensions to being a unity of two, of, of, of existing as humans in relation to one another. One of them is this speak this call and response, speaking and listening. Another one is The simple fact of love, right? Love needs an object. So here's what Thomas Merton says. Love not only prefers the good of another to my own, but it does not even compare the two. It has only one good, that of the beloved, which is at the same time my own. Love shares the good with another not by dividing it with him, but by identifying itself with him so that his good becomes my own. The same good is enjoyed in its wholeness by two in one spirit, not halved and shared by two souls. Just like the Trinity is not divided into three parts and shared by three persons, but each person of the Trinity is wholly divine. Where love is really disinterested, the lover does not even stop to inquire whether he can safely appropriate for himself some part of the good which he wills for his friends. So so love consists of this absolute unqualified self-giving to the other now this is this is there from the very beginning right this is this is utter, utterly fundamental to what it means to be human, and this is what flies in the face of everything that the world says right you, you aren 't being a human if you're not asking, if you 're not loving and you 're not loving if you 're asking questions about your love right like uh, is this good for me is this um, you know is this, is this different than is that good different than my good? Um, is this really going to help everybody? It's just loving the beloved for the sake of the beloved. I mean, it's, a, it's something that is beyond us, right? We can't, we can't see that. We can't manage that except in seeing Christ crucified on the cross, the sort of the manifest example of that kind of selfless love. Here's what Thomas Merton says. Love seeks its whole good in the good of the beloved, and to divide that good would be to diminish love. Such a division would not only weaken the action of love, but in doing so would also diminish its joy. For love does not seek a joy that follows from its effect. We're not, we don't exist as means for one another to accomplish things. Love does, not follow from the, love does not seek a joy that follows from its effect. Its joy is in the effect itself, which is the good of the beloved. So we are fulfilled in our humanity when we seek the good our fellow humans. This is what it also means for God to be God. This is where the image of image of God in man is most clear, right? Uh, the good of the God's joy is in his communion with with uh, the, the persons of the trinity. Go ahead Barb. I mean, what's
1: when I did accept God I it God? He was just me and then I the
0: next thought is, I know. Right. I know yeah. But that's faith. That's... You're right. So now... so th- And that's a really important point because it, uh, it is faith and, it, and God is the, um, the one who br- draws us in, right? Who, who uh, leads us to believe. But the r- the really important point about human nature, about anthropology here, is that this is true from the beginning. Faith is not something that came... that was necessary after we fell away from God, after we fell into sin. But faith was there from the beginning, right? Um, So it's a remarkable thing when you think about what life was like in the Garden of Eden. It's beyond your comprehension, right? Um, But it was, at the same time, just like what you experience when you trust God, when you believe in Him. It's, 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 um, uh, It's the same... Uh, relationship of unmerited, complete, completely grace-oriented goodness that's given to you, right? Um, and it, it, here's the beautiful thing about faith as a Christian. And here's why some church fathers talk about the fall into sin as a happy fall. So in creation, we see God's goodness revealed in that he creates us and loves us and sustains us. And, um, and his love is not just giving things to us, but giving himself to us. But in redemption, we see just how much he loves us. The, the full extent to, to which he is uh, willing to give himself for us. Right? So that uh, what wasn't necessary before the fall now is necessary because of sin, that God would sacrifice himself, not just for um, a peer, not, not just you, know, you giving yourself up for your neighbor, but for his creature, no less. Um, so, this is all to say, let me bundle this up real quick here. This is all to say, when we ask the question, what, is the, what does it mean to be human? The answer is found in being created in the image of God. And that image of God implies being created male and female, and then by extension, being created to exist for one another. Right? to love one another, um, and to, to be in community. Okay? Everybody on board so far? Okay. Now, here's, uh, here's how Thomas Burton concludes. Love seeks only one thing, the good of the loved. It leaves all the other secondary effects to take care of themselves. Love, therefore, is its own reward, um, which is uh, what we aspire to in faith, right? It's what we aspire to um, in, in following Christ, Okay. Any questions right now? Oh, yes. Nancy.
1: This kind of love though, because of human sin. I mean what I was thinking of, whoa, like a possessive mother who might be constantly be pouring out herself and thinking only of, Oh, what can I do for my child, then the child is totally uncompared my world.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so Thomas Merton, helpfully on previous pages, splices out. Take a look. Uh, that's that's a great a great point. Take a look at the, the previous page in your packet. It's Roman numeral nineteen. He has, and, and on the bottom, the right column, the bottom side, there's a vertical line, vertical red line. Um, he's just described three different ways that love is sort of perverted. The third says that we must love only ourselves. This is the it's a simple um, temptation of sin we love only ourselves the second says that we must love only another so so the so the other um, becomes the complete the, the becomes the annihilation of us not not acknowledging that uh, we're meant to exist together right this is where um, this is where it's easy to go wrong as a parent or as 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 um, I mean, just generally, it's, it's easy to go wrong and think that uh, for me to love somebody else implies a diminishment of myself. Um, sometimes it seems that way, but it is, in fact, not true. The first says that in loving another, we simply seek the most effective way to love ourselves, um, which is often what happens, so suppose... Uh, in the case of in the case of a possessive mother, as you're describing, Nancy, right? Uh, because maintaining this relationship of dependence is is, a, is the best sort of the best way to love myself, instead of seeking love as as uh, the good of the other. Here's what he says. Then, the true answer, which is supernatural. So this goes to your point, Barb. We can't get it, right? It's supernatural tells us that we must love ourselves in order to be able to love others. And that we must find ourselves by giving ourselves to them. So, in order to love others, we must love ourselves. In order to love ourselves, we must love others. Okay? Good luck with that. Um, but this is what Christ says when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and all of this, again, is bundled up in God's, divine, God's, God's uh, essence, what it means for God to be God, and the divine image that he gives to us in creation. Okay. Take a look now, just just to mix things up a little bit. Take a look at Jessica Valenti. This is a, this is going to be the last thing in your packet. Now, th- so this has been, and I apologize again for nerding out on you, but this is all this all can be really ethereal and um, sound like it doesn't sound like not a lot of nice thoughts. But here's here's how it bears on reality. Here's where it. Um, comes home so you see take a look at the bottom left page page 46 jessica valenti um, here's what she says even in the so-called mommy wars between working mothers and stay-at-home mothers the underlying value system is one that assumes having professional help to raise our children be it subsidized daycare or a live-in nanny is a necessary evil something women do because the best possible option isn't available after all even working mothers would like more time with their children. That's why they fight for flex time and better maternity leave and pay. Americans believe that the best option for children is parents as caregivers, period. The days of It Takes a Village are gone because even if taking care of our children does require the help of other people, parents are likely to feel badly about it rather than seeing it as a natural part of raising a child as part of a community. Now, How does that strike you? Accurate, right? Um, in every dimension, right so you don't, yep, right think you should be able to do it on your own you should you ought to be able to do it on your own this is so the title of the chapter children need their parents this so she 's identifying that as a myth right that children need their parents well,
1: and that you ought to be, ought to be able to do it on your own goes back to the autonomy right part that separates us. To our own detriment, you know, so many people think that it's a benefit to be autonomous. I can, you know, I am willing to roar, go, you know, do whatever on my own, do everything. It's really to your own detriment. And in this case, it pulls you out of the community.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, so so uh, so th- it, this is one of the places where she really hits the nail on the head. And this is one of the things that really irks her, right, to, to suspect that... Um, the ideal of family is uh, still this ideal of autonomy, right? So, yes, it's a family, but it is a coherent, distinct unit. It doesn't need other people. It doesn't take a village anymore, which is simply not true. This is why I'm so thankful for all of you and when you hold my kids, because uh, I know that I'm not going to be able to hold them all the time and, and that my holding them uh, is not sufficient for them. Because God has given you to me, right? And he has given my children to you. Um, it's, it's the way he designed us to work. This is, again, what it means to be created in the image of God. Um, but now, here's, here's the other interesting thing. Not to not just because I wanted to get a jab in at Jessica Valenti, but take a look at the uh, last underlined part there. Now, this is all well and good, but you, st- you still need some value, some goal in place to substitute, right? So if you say, um, no, it's not good to, uh, to think that parents can do it on their own um, because it takes a village, um, what's the alternative? What is good? And here's what she says. She notes that children in high-quality child care scored higher on academic and cognitive tests as teenagers than children who didn't attend child care. They were also less likely to have behavioral issues than children who attended lower quality childcare centers. So, what is her value? What does she think the, the goal of raising children is? Test scores and, and discipline, yeah. Right? Now, if you were going to, so what is, what is the goal of a community raising children?
1: How to live in a family
0: and how to succeed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, right. Love God and love your neighbor. Um, This is so in, uh, where is it? I think it's in Malachi. God says, God is accusing the Israelite men of leaving the wives of their youth. They run off and pursue foreign women. And he says, look, all I asked of you was that you would raise up godly offspring. And by godly, he means more people who fulfill the Im- who live in the image of God, right? Um, who love God and love their neighbor, right? So this is what the community fosters. If you, if you don't have that, then you substitute something else. Like, we're going to make really good citizens. That's our primary goal. Or we're going to make really bright, high-achieving people. Or we're going to make really well-behaved people, too, right? There's the law for you. Let's just make sure everybody's in line. Uh, it, it doesn't cut it, right? Love of God is, is the is the goal. Now, just for, again, for interest's sake, flip back to one, two, three, four pages. There's an Atlantic article that looks like this called Instamom. When I read this article, I thought to myself... This is what Jessica Valenti is, uh, is aiming at. Um, and this, is, this ties us all back back to uh, the, ways, the ways that talking about identity can go wrong. Um, so there's this blogger called, her blog site's called The Barefoot Blonde. And she, well here, just look, listen to what uh, this, this highlighter, this, this uh, red marked section. Filler Up Clark, her name is Amber Filler Up Clark has shared enough holidays and milestones that she and her husband can predict what types of images will charm her followers. Before we post a picture, we can usually tell how good the engagement will be based off the content. If it has the whole family in a pretty place traveling, that's going to do the best. Fill her up, Clark said. That's going to do the best. Fill her up, Clark said. On another occasion, she told me, We always have to think of our life as, Where can you take the prettiest pictures? (laughs) Then flip the page. This is so interesting. And uh, uh, so the writer of this article was having a lot of fun with the irony of the whole thing. Filler up. Clark's portrait of domestic bliss has earned her a top spot among second generation of so-called mommy bloggers. She joins a clique of stylish women, among them Naomi Davis of Love Taza and Rachel Parcell of Pink Peenies, who have acquired loyal followings and incomes rumored to be in the seven figures by showing themselves excelling as ordinary wives and mothers. If the feats these blogs capture are familiar, dressing well, attending to children, this is a key part of the appeal. The women epitomize a new breed of celebrity as public fascination expands beyond the rich and famous to the well-off and above average. We're seeing people following almost idealized versions of themselves. It's this attainable perfection. So Jessica Valenti takes aim at this because, of course, what what a blog like this... Tries to do is um, cultivate this image of life, which is just simply not true, right? She has, by the way, she has two assistants who help her when they go to do a photo shoot in the park, um, and and her husband uh, quit law school because she was earning six, fig- seven figures off of this blog, and now he's a full time blog husband, which is great for them. It's fantastic, right? But but the but the following. The following and the ethical imperative that we feel as a result of it so this responsibility that we feel, so we so if this is our idealized version of ourself um, if it's if it's an attainable perfection, then we've completely lost sight of what it means to be creatures of god right um, and this is again Jessica Valenti hits the nail on the head this is this is a setup for failure, right this is a setup for. Disaster, right? Um, but the, but nonetheless, she has, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand blog readers and one point three million Instagram followers, right? Because because at the at the heart of it, um, if you don't have, if you don't understand your your uh, humanity in relation to God, something else has to come in and take its place, right? This idealized perfection. Okay. I'm not really sure uh, what I said today. Let's see. Does it make sense? You have any questions? Let me. Let's 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 uh, sum it up this way. To be human means to be made in the image of God, and to be made in the image of God means that you need other people, and not just in a uh, and not to, and not in a way in which you. Their means to an end, but in which they are important, dignified uh, for themselves um, humanity is unique amongst god, among god 's creation because humanity is the only creature that God created for its own sake right God created humanity because he wanted humanity and he wanted humanity to be like him so that so that he could relate to it as he relates to himself. This is a real struggle for us for the world, um, but uh, take if you get a chance, take a look at the. Do you ha, do you have another minute? Let me read you one more article. That's a that was a silly question to ask because you wouldn't say no if you didn't. There's the article about digital assistance, digital aids gender problem. This is from this was just a couple days ago in the Wall Street Journal. Um, so if I if I was going to leave you with one thing, it would be to think about the ways that. Um, Although although I know you all take for granted that you 're creatures of God, think about the ways that the way the ways that the world speaks to you against that and the things that you take for granted um, that that sort of go counter to that um, even even things as simple as as self determination right the ways that you you feel or you discover that you are seeking self determination um, it 's an exercise in, in Self-evaluation, um, and you have to do it because um, this stuff is it runs so deep in our blood. Okay, but here, here's a, 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 this article is an indication of uh, how the way the world thinks about humanity is is problematic. All right, so if you, if it's true that humanity is not created male and female um, in the image of God, then we would have no trouble creating genderless robots. But, and we would have no trouble relating to genderless robots. This is the, the really interesting thing. Every robotics expert and tech executive I spoke to said that humans are social beings who relate better to things that resemble what they know. That's obvious, right? But, and take, it, take it a step further, not just things that they know, but other people, right? Um, I relate much better to people than I do to rocks, even though I know rocks pretty well, right? Specifically, because people can speak and respond, they listen. It's not that there aren't or can't be pat bots, androgynous bots, but even when designers don't specify the gender, users tend to, because we know we know inherently that God has created us to live in existence with other people, to relate to other people. That we can't just relate to machines. Brian Scazzaletti, a professor at the Yale Social Robotics Lab, says that in, his study, in, in studies where he and his team were meticulous about introducing a particular humanoid robot as it, invariably people referred to it as he or she. And then, then in this, I mean, comical but obvious statement that genderless voice is hard. It's hard. So if there's going to be speaking, if there's going to be speaking, it's going to be gendered because speech is human. Right, and humans are created male and female, um, so the, they don't answer the question why is it hard, or, or dig deeper to explore what it means to be human on account of that. But um, you can see you can see how denying our creation in the image of God runs into into some trouble. It runs into some some paradoxes. Okay, I'll stop talking now. Any questions? Yes, Julie. So- yeah. So this is a struggle for me, right? I used to read all these blogs. I don't read them anymore because I find myself preparing
1: and trying to like um, be worthy to myself in this manner. So I don't want to do that. And so yes, one thing I do is I like don't read certain things or I try not to go on Facebook or whatever. But that, I mean, that's almost like running away. Yeah, right. And so. Um, as much as I want to take away that temptation, I feel like I need to have some sort of mantra, be it a Bible verse, be it, you know, something to, to counter it. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking for that phrase. You know what I mean? Like that, you know, we've explained in great depth um, you know, why we have words and it's not because
0: our kids look pretty in these pictures with leaves, but it's because of who God made us. Right.
1: Um, and so I guess I'm looking for like that.
0: Yeah. So Speak to so I'll give it to you in two, in two places. One is when in, Genesis, in Genesis, uh, Genesis 1, 31, He's just created man and woman. And God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. Why was it very good? Because He made it. Okay. So, from the beginning, it's good because he made it. Then fast forward to Jesus' baptism, which is the, the archetype of your baptism. So, what happens to Jesus in his baptism happens to you in your baptism. Specifically, the heavens open, and the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Why? Because God has just baptized you. Um. Which is a beautiful thing to take into any situation where there's a where there's and this you're right you can't avoid it right um, whether you whether you don't read blogs or don't go on social media you're still going to encounter it I mean as you drive down the road and you see billboards or you uh, see magazines in the in the grocery store or you see other people right <laughs> um, the the temptation is always to compare um, and the response the response is that well God first told me um, and still tells me every day that I'm his beloved because he he has chosen me, right? Martha.
1: So, in in addition to that, which we, like you said, for for this group, you know, speaking to the choir, Mm -hmm. you know, we all feel that way. Yeah. But years ago, someone said to me, I mean, this was a long time ago, I was in my early 30s, so way, way (laughs) back. (laughs) Someone said, don't compare your insides to somebody else's outside, <laughs> how I feel inside about myself, my work, whatever. Don't look at Susie Q. blogger who has the perfect children, the perfect family, and the staging, and compare and think that she is better than me or any different than me. What we project on the outside is not always reality.
0: Right. So, yeah, and the only so the only the only thing to avoid there is, and I fall into this all the time too, is this this sort of Schadenfreude. When I, when I see somebody who's got the perfect life and I say, ah, uh, but, I, but I know what's really going on on the inside, right? It's like it's like when you have your house staged, right? You, you knew what it looked like beforehand, right? Um, so, yeah, go ahead, Barb. I think
1: one of the things maybe can, maybe can help her too is that you know, when we first started doing the sign of the cross at church here, yeah. and I was kind of like, oh, that's Catholic. Oh, I really don't want to do it. But I would do it, and now it's, it's like, oh, I know that keeps the devil away. I know that re- I remember my baptism. I constantly tell my grandson, every time you do this, you remember yeah. you're a child of God. Yeah. And if you remember you're a child of God, it's like, it, it's so wonderful. It, yeah. I just love being able to do that. Right. You, just, you can do that all the time during the day, and you remember you're a child of God. Right. It kind of throws you back.
0: Right. And, and, and it also, so... Making the sign of the cross is, is fantastic for that reason because it pulls you back to your baptism, which is once again this passive thing. You, you were dunked in the water. You didn't do anything to, to make that happen. And it also, that, so then it's also a call to pull you back to um, not just an, not an effort to sort of cultivate this feeling of uh, belovedness, right? It's hard to cultivate, it's impossible to cultivate feelings. And when you do, it's usually artificial. But it draws you. To who you are and where you where you where you find your identity at the Eucharist, right? So when you say when you say to yourself, "I uh, who am I," or "Am I meeting standards?" You come and take the Eucharist and you say, "Well, I'm somebody for whom Christ, to whom Christ gives His body and blood," um, which says everything I need to know about myself. That's everything I need to know. Okay, let's go.